Harris, and this is Tending Bar. Now, in just a moment, we're going to be speaking with my friend Peter Vincent, a former senior official in the Department of Homeland Security and former DOJ official, and he has very interesting stories to tell. But before we do that, because this is our first episode, I want to tell you just a little bit about the Tending Bar project. So, this project was started just a few months ago uh, as an effort to encourage and inspire my students at Georgetown Law where I've been teaching as an adjunct professor for a long time. The idea was to introduce them to attorneys who have interesting stories to tell about careers that uh, make a positive impact on society, bigger picture kinds of careers. But in in doing these interviews, we found that they are conversations that that really are good for all of us as we reflect upon uh, not just the bar, the legal profession, We're not just tending to the bar in the sense that we're reflecting upon the profession and the people who are in it, but we're reflecting on broader issues, the values and purposes that underlie this system that we as lawyers and citizens support. And so I'm excited for us to be able to talk about those issues at a time when uh, here we are in the midst of a global pandemic, and across America right now, as we're recording, there are people protesting police brutality and reminding us that indeed black lives matter. And if there was a hope for tending bar that I have, in addition to helping students, it would be that it could be an antidote for cynicism. Because as part of these conversations, we're going we're gonna to introduce you to good people who are doing great things. So I hope you'll join us for all of tending bar. But today, especially, I'm excited to introduce you to Peter Vincent. I first met Peter several years ago uh, when he was the general counsel of a company that manages large databases for a variety of customers, but including law enforcement agencies at every level across the country, including classified databases that are relied upon by our intelligence community. Fascinating work that Peter was particularly well suited to serve because in prior years, He had worked in important law enforcement agencies for our federal government, and we're going to hear about some of that today. So let me introduce you now to Peter Vincent. Peter, you're on the air. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate you joining us today. There's so much to talk about that we could spend a lot of time hearing about (laughs) a lot of the stories you've been involved in, but I've got two or three that I really want to hear about, and um, I know that our listeners will enjoy. You were the senior most attorney, the general counsel of ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Organization for the majority of the Obama administration. Uh, And uh, we want to talk about that primarily today. But before you were uh, in that position at ICE, you were a judicial attache for the Department of Justice to our U.S. Embassy in Bogota, Colombia. Can you tell us what was that job about? What were your responsibilities there? Thanks, Todd. It was an incredible job being part of an embassy, being part of a U.S. mission in a particularly important stage of Colombia's history. And I represented there the U.S. Department of Justice as a fully accredited diplomat. Many people know that 
There are large embassy communities that involve different agencies other than purely foreign service officers with the U.S. Department of State. And the embassy in Colombia is one of the largest embassies in the world. And I was proud to represent the United States and the Department of Justice whilst posted there in Bogota. So, and I, I gather that it was because of your time in Bogota that you, you became such a subject matter expert on the kinds of difficult issues that you tackled in ICE. You became an expert on trafficking in drugs and trafficking in, in human beings across our southern border. Um, tell us about that. Yeah, what's interesting, Todd, is my, my mother always said it's better to be lucky than good, and I have certainly been very, very lucky. I, I started my federal public service career actually uh, right after the September 11th attacks with Legacy Immigration and Naturalization Service, which pursuant to the Homeland Security Act of 2002 was effectively converted into what we now refer to and know as the Department of Homeland Security, in particular Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Whilst I was at Immigration and Customs Enforcement, I was given the opportunity to handle pretty interesting uh, and sensitive terrorism cases and counter-narcotics cases. I had served many years before in Guatemala as a very long-haired Peace Corps volunteer, so I was fluent in Spanish. I had security clearances in place because of the work that I was doing on counter-terrorism work representing the Joint Terrorism Task Forces uh, in Northern California, in Sacramento and San Francisco. And so I was given the opportunity to go to Colombia uh, with the U.S. Department of Justice. So I had a background in prosecuting non-U.S. citizens that found themselves in immigration court because they had committed crimes uh, like terrorism or uh, human rights violations or other serious crimes. And so I was in a unique position to be able to contribute to the embassy community. While I was at the embassy, of course, we were dealing with extraordinary extraordinarily complicated matters involving, involving narco-trafficking. At that time, Colombia had three designated foreign terrorist organizations operating within Colombia, and the United States was clearly interested in those organizations, uh, especially those that were looking to overthrow the democratically elected government of Colombia, and those, some of the same ones, in fact, that were engaging in large-scale narco-trafficking. Uh, at the same time, the U.S. government was putting about $1 billion per year into Colombia to ensure that its democracy remains safe and stable to assist the Colombians with their efforts uh, on law enforcement matters. So what it was what really were those funds going towards? What were we, what were we um, funding with that money? The funding was designed to assist Colombian law enforcement and intelligence gathering agencies with their efforts to root out, identify, and deter terrorism and narco-trafficking. Is that, and a, is that equipment? It, is that paying salaries? Was it um, funding our own personnel? We did not pay personnel? salaries. We provided equipment. Uh, we put on training. We shared information. We provided some very sensitive uh, technology to our Colombian counterparts. And I, I will say that it's probably some of the best money the United States government has ever spent. It was pursuant to the uh, program called Plan Colombia. It lasted for a number of years and it was started when Colombia was very much uh, on the brink, when there was great worry in the United States and obviously in Colombia 
that it would fall into a sort of narco state type of dynamic. And that money was able to really shore up the Colombian democracy in a way that I think really served, obviously, and most importantly, Colombian citizens, but the United States and the rest of the world as well. Yeah. Well, so let's let's focus on one of those organizations in particular, the, the Sinaloa cartel, the drug cartel. Tell us, tell us who was Joaquin El Chapo Guzman and what was, what was oh. your role in apprehending him? So Joaquin Chapo Guzman is a fascinating and extraordinarily uh, violent individual who rose from great humility. I think he had probably three years of formal education growing up in an extremely impoverished environment uh, in the mountain regions of Mexico, but rose to be, without a doubt, uh, the most powerful, dangerous, wealthiest, ambitious narco-trafficker in the last at least couple of decades. Uh, he coordinated very closely with Colombian narco-traffickers, many of whom got their start decades before with the infamous Medellin cartel under the auspices of, of Pablo Escobar, as well as the equally vicious Cali cartel. But Joaquin El Chapo Guzman was able to take large amounts of high-grade cocaine from Colombia and distribute it throughout the world, predominantly into the United States. So uh, we're going to roll some pictures of, of you talking about um, El Chapo. Many of our viewers will recognize you because you have, you've talked about the El Chapo case on um, 60 Minutes, BBC, ABC, NBC. Uh, they may have seen you talking about this very famous case, and it was famous for a lot of reasons, not just because he was uh, the largest drug trafficker um, in the world, but because he managed to escape from prison um, after after being apprehended and serving time in Mexico, he bribed guards and escaped. And then when he was later apprehended uh, and again put in Mexican prison, he, he escaped by his signature method. He had a tunnel built to his cell. And so uh, t tell us about, about that whole process and uh, your role in, in the search for El Chapo. So I was very much involved, not only dealing with Colombian terrorist organizations uh, and narco-trafficking cartels, but we were deeply involved with working with our law enforcement partners in Mexico as well during the really powerful reign of the Sinaloa cartel. There was a great deal of information sharing between Mexico, Colombia, and the United States. And Chapo Guzman, as you mentioned, incredibly uh, adept at escaping from two of Mexico's most hardened federal prisons. He had unlimited resources. He was able to finance uh, literally the best tunnel builders in the world that he was able to recruit from Germany. He was able also to work with the Colombian cartels to uh, recruit and pay uh, submarine engineers from uh, Russia to build semi-submersible so-called narco-submarines in the mangrove forests and groves uh, along the Pacific coast of Colombia. But what Chapo Guzman's true brilliance was, was leveraging tunnels. He's so-called the, 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 the king of the tunnels. And in his escape from the prison in Mexico on the second occasion, his engineers were able to create, build uh, a tunnel that went nearly one mile long and featured a motorcycle on rails, it had lighting, it had a, a ventilation system, 
that was one of the, the most sophisticated tunnels that one could possibly find. And that was a, he was able to escape through a hole in the partitioned shower area of his cell. Uh, and then to, um, uh, he was whisked away uh, and took law enforcement officers a very long time to find him afterwards. So after he escaped Mexico, um, uh, and you had left ICE at, at that time, we were actually working together. But un, unbeknownst to me or my colleagues, you'd been called back to be part of the task force because of your substantial expertise. You were the subject matter expert on El Chapo to help apprehend him. Can you tell us about that? Well, Todd, unfortunately, please don't take it personally. There's a lot that I simply can't discuss sure. because it was classified. All I can say was that I uh, have been a subject matter expert on narco-trafficking generally, on the Medellin cartel, the Sinaloa cartel, amongst others. And I was part of a very large team that was contributing its experience and its advice. The Mexican Marines really deserve all of the credit for the brave raid uh, on the last hideout that El Chapo Guzman and some of his lieutenants were ultimately hiding out in. But the United States government, along with the Colombians, were extraordinarily active. It was interesting in that when El Chapo Guzman escaped through this narco tunnel, one of the first calls that the then president of Mexico, Enrique Peña Nieto, made was to the president of Colombia, asking them to provide the assistance that Mexico felt like it needed in order to track down El Chapo Guzman. And, of course, the United States was very much involved as well, providing lots of technical assistance, for instance, and advice. But I really want to emphasize that the Mexican Marines, that particular unit, really deserves all of the credit. But it truly was a, a global uh, community effort in order to track down one of the most notorious and vicious narco-traffickers that history has seen. And, and the Mexican Marines ultimately captured El Chapo again in a, in a shootout. Uh, in his hideout, not not too too long after he had escaped that that latter time, um, you you famously uh, said that he became uh, sloppy. They became careless because of his interest in tacos, tequila, and chicas. I believe was the quote. Can you tell us what you yeah, mean by that? Yeah, it was a quote that I didn't mean it to sound so flippant, and I I didn't know actually that that quote would become so famous. <laughs> the sixty minutes, of course, is the most respected news uh, show in the world, probably. And during the taping, I, I was at the end of taping. I was sort of tired, and I, I, I put it out there knowing that they would uh, edit the, the hours of tape that I provided them and assuming that that part would be cut out. Uh, 60 Minutes does not let its uh, subjects uh, or its uh, the people that they interview see the final episode until it's actually released uh, live on, on, or not live, but on air. And as, as, as your students will know, that litigation is always a risk. And most 60 Minutes uh, subjects aren't particularly pleased with how they appear on 60 Minutes. So uh, I didn't see it until that Sunday evening when 60 Minutes came on. And that quote actually started the program. 60 Minutes replayed that particular episode three times. So they estimate that 30 million people saw it. Um, and what I meant by it was simply that El Chapo Guzman was so used to being able to either threaten or terrorize or bribe his way out of jail or out of bad situations that he really started to feel as if he was untouchable. 
he had been able to escape from two very seriously hardened prisons in Mexico uh, and to hide out for very long periods of times and to continue to carry out his narco-trafficking activities basically without much impunity at all. And but what happens in those situations to individuals that have that degree of power and that have really managed through very ingenious means of staying out of the hands of law enforcement for very long periods of time is that he started to believe his own hype. He started to get drunk on his own wine, as I've said before. And at the same time, uh, like, like many of us, he has certain weaknesses. And for El Chapo Guzman, the combination of his feeling entirely invulnerable combined with a taste for the, the, the high life, uh, such as it is, uh, would, despite the considerable risks to himself, still engage in a great deal of partying and carrying on. And he loved the ability to summon extraordinarily beautiful uh, young women. He loved the ability to enjoy fine meals. And so he was enjoying a party with some nice food and a number of, of women. Uh, and that, that, that blind spot, that weakness was something that enabled the law enforcement officials of, of Mexico and the United States to actually hone in on where he was. It was that, that particular very human weakness of, as I said flippantly, tacos, tequila, and chicas that allowed law enforcement to hone in on him. And by the way, perhaps not coincidentally, Todd, that same weakness is something that Pablo Escobar of the infamous and extraordinarily powerful and ambitious and dangerous Medellin cartel had as well. I don't know if it's a particular psychological archetype of a narco trafficker or of an incredibly powerful business man in most cases or business women in some cases, but that sort of blind spot we were very much aware of in law enforcement and we were looking for opportunities to exploit that very human weakness in El Chapo Guzman. And in fact, um, he summoned uh, a, a fairly famous actress from telenovelas and uh, who, who then brought in Sean Penn, as I recall. And there was some tracking of their movements that helped to find him. Can you tell us about that? Right. El Chapo Guzman was being monitored fairly <laughs> closely by law enforcement from Mexico, for sure, and perhaps other countries as well. And he reached out through one of his lieutenants to a sort of B actress uh, in Mexico by the name of Kate Del Castillo, who was famous in Mexico for a sort of uh, soap opera-ish, narco-trafficking type uh, uh, series involving a female uh, narco trafficker that had risen to uh, had risen to great heights of power and influence called La Reina del Sur, the, the, the Queen of the South. And El Chapo Guzman was very much aware of his fame, or better yet, his infamy, but he wanted to add to it. He was fascinated. He was caught up in his own uh, image, his own, his own folklore of, of this Robin Hood-like character. And so he reached out and he was interested in doing a sort of made in Hollywood movie uh, involving the story of him. And so Kate Del Castillo and the great director, Sean Penn, and 
uh, actor, Sean Penn, and Kate Del Castillo communicated, actually went to Mexico to meet with Chapo Guzman whilst he was on the run, hiding out in the mountains uh, of the so-called Golden Triangle in, in central Mexico. Unbeknownst to either Kate Del Castillo or Sean Penn, their movements were being tracked, and it enabled authorities in Mexico to triangulate those signals and to figure out where El Chapo Guzman was. The challenge was that Kate Del Castillo and uh, Sean Penn are complete innocents, and there was worry that if a raid was staged to try to capture El Chapo Guzman while Kate Del Castillo and Sean Penn were in present, his presence, there could be a loss of life situation. So the authorities waited uh, and were unfortunately not able to get to him at that particular time. Yeah, but this, Todd, I mean, it's just the, the whole, whole story continues to fascinate everyone, including myself, because it truly is stranger than fiction. If you would have tried to put a, a script together for Hollywood uh, or Bollywood or whatever, most people would say, ah, oh, that's too, uh, it's too crazy. It's not realistic. That's, uh, it, it doesn't make any sense. And yet this is real life. This, this Chapo Guzman's life is very much real. Um, and it's just amazing what someone of, again, extraordinarily limited educational means, but an extremely clever, bright, savvy person is able to, to do to uh, include these narco tunnels, the use of technology to stay uh, away uh, or off the radar, uh, so to speak, of law enforcement really is, is a fascinating study. And the same with Paulo Escobar before him. Uh, so, Well, so as we said, he was eventually uh, captured in a shootout. Uh, by the Mexican Marines, and uh, eventually extradited to the United States. And uh, he's sitting today in a supermax prison in Colorado, serving a life sentence. How, how has that impacted uh, the cartel and uh, the, the incidents of narco-trafficking from his organization? Todd, individuals like Pablo Escobar, who was killed by Colombian Defense Forces back in 1993, and El Chapo Guzman, who, as you say, now sits and will remain for the rest of his life in uh, the so-called Alcatraz of the Rockies in Florence, Colorado, possess a certain degree of, of criminal genius, as well as a certain degree of charisma that made them extraordinarily effective leaders for their respective organizations. These individuals, again, are undereducated, but extremely smart and clever and adaptable. I don't want to sound cynical, but I'm not quite convinced yet, and I've been at this for a very, very long time, that taking either El Chapo Guzman, most recently, and Pablo Escobar, out of the narco-trafficking uh, dynamic, actually, in the end, does any good. Because it's sort of like that old carnival game. I mean, I'm not sure if your students are even familiar with it called whack-a-mole. That you take these leaders out of organizations, but there's always someone else waiting in the wings. Now, as I've said, and as I've emphasized, I, I do think that Pablo Escobar from decades ago and El Chapo Guzman are unique characters in, in narco-trafficking history, in history generally. 
But there are other individuals, not nearly as clever or smart or as charismatic, that are able to rise within the ranks of these multinational drug corporations and to continue to lead them to achieve great power, wealth, and to instill fear and terror um, in many places across the world. I, I have always said, and I'm very strong on law enforcement, obviously given my background, but that if we want to address the horrific problem of drug abuse, including overdoses, we need to look at not only the supply side of the equation, we need to frankly and honestly look at the demand side of the equation. And I debriefed dozens, if not many dozens, of narco-traffickers and terrorists that were also engaged in narco-trafficking to fuel their terroristic activity, to buy weapons, to recruit uh, tunnel engineers, to recruit different uh, uh, levels of accountants and lawyers to continue and carry out their illicit activity. And what they all said was, Peter, you Americans are the cause of all of this because that's where all of the dope is being sent. It's also being sent to Canada, it's being sent to Europe, more and more to Australia. But our refusal in the United States to take a very hard look at what is it about our society here where people are looking to at least temporarily change the reality when we have 50,000 people a year overdosing on drugs in this country, the vast majority of them opioid. That's a real significant problem on the demand side that must be addressed. It's not, I'm not suggesting, an easy thing to address. I don't have any solutions. I have some ideas on how we should go about dealing with low-level offenders in the United States that are caught uh, with drugs for personal use, the use of drug courts, for instance, uh, that, that, are channel, that would channel those offenders into programs to help them kick these horrific um, addictions rather than incarcerating them and thereby denying them not only of their liberty for their crimes, but putting them in a place where economically, when they are ultimately released, they have a very difficult time finding gainful employment. So many of them were revert back to not only using, but then selling narcotics to be able to put food on their table. So I, I, the amount of cocaine coming to the United States has only grown since Pablo Escobar's demise, since uh, El Chapo Guzman's incarceration. The quality is, if not uh, better, at least of the same quality. The number of coca fields in Colombia, despite the literally billions of dollars that the United States has appropriately spent making sure that Colombia remains a proud democratic state, have not impacted uh, the, the degree of violence, the degree of, 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 of tragedy related to uh, overdoses in this country as well and in other countries. And that's what really, I think, as Americans, as, as, as global citizens, we really need to focus is on that other side of the equation, the demand side, and how we address that appropriately in the United States, given that it is extraordinarily complicated. We're going to pause for a moment from our conversation with Peter Vincent so I can tell you what's ahead. 
Remember, Peter was the General Counsel of Immigration and Customs Enforcement during the Obama administration. He talked candidly with us about challenging immigration topics like asylum, family separation, unaccompanied minors, and importantly, DACA. Peter was one of the chief architects of DACA, so you don't want to miss that. So we'll share all the, those portions of our interview with Peter Vincent in an upcoming episode of Tending Bar. For now, we're going to skip ahead in our conversation so that we can turn to current events. Back to Peter. I want to, I want to turn our attention finally to talking about current events. Um, here we are um, in, uh, in early June, and um, there, there are protests underway uh, where we both live around Washington, D.C., but also around the country um, protesting uh, deaths of unarmed black men, repeatedly, most recently, George Floyd. And uh, just a few days ago, there was um, police violence in Washington, D.C. that utilized um, Customs and Border Patrol officers, uh, or so it is reported, um, against peaceful protesters, against persons who uh, were not, not looting, not carrying out violence against policemen or property or other persons. Um, and so I, I know that you have had some strong feelings about that. You were quoted by ABC News. Uh, just yesterday, talking about this, I wonder if you'll if you'll share with us your thoughts. Sure, Todd. It's it's an incredibly difficult time globally, but perhaps particularly in the United States. Now, it is true that in extraordinary circumstances, it's appropriate for CBP and ICE and other law enforcement agencies to supplement the local police departments and the Secret Service to ensure that constitutionally protected rights are respected, to ensure that that small percentage of violent protesters are stopped and, if necessary, arrested when they are interfering with constitutionally protected rights of speech and assembly. and. That was not the case, and has not been the case in many communities. And I said it, uh, as you say, uh, very, very publicly, that crowd control is not the job of CBP and ICE officers. It's not what they are trained for. And I, I, I firmly believe that. I, I was troubled by what appears to be a concerted effort to chill free speech and to intimidate peaceful protesters by not only law enforcement, but by the National Guard. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm not alone in that position. There are plenty of very thoughtful people that strongly disagree with me and others, but that's my position. I've always said Department of Homeland Security and its operational agencies, including CBP, ICE, the U.S. Coast Guard, and Secret Service, have an extraordinarily difficult, complex, controversial, and sensitive task as it is. And we need not further complicate and let alone politicize or weaponize, or weaponize their authorities through the use of crowd control, including aggressive efforts at, aimed at peaceful protesters. I, I, I want to 
sort of wrap up by asking you to do something that we plan to ask all of our guests on Tending Bar. Uh, we've been asking them sort of generally, why do you want to be a lawyer? What, what brought you to being a lawyer? And you have had a career of service to the American people. And in companies, even you have done things that are helpful to the broader community, uh, including that job that where you and I work together. And um, what, what I want to ask you is to tell us about what, what are those underlying motivations that direct you as, as an attorney? And if you have any advice for law students or others who might be watching this as they're thinking about how they can make a positive impact. My particular circumstances were that I am this proud son of a single mother who worked very, very hard at three jobs to keep us fed while she went to graduate school and became a psychologist. And I was able to attend UC Berkeley on uh, scholarships because of our economic status and perhaps a bit of um, good grades on my part as well. And so I think it was for thoroughly ingrained in me from a young age to um, uh, look for opportunities to repay this country effectively for the opportunities that I was given to go to college. And immediately after college at UC Berkeley, it was almost predestined once I went to UC Berkeley to join the Peace Corps, which I did. And I ended up, as I said, going to the Peace Corps as a long-haired, very idealistic um, individual to uh, war-torn Guatemala at that, at that particular stage. And I, I knew from a very early age that I wanted to give back to my community, uh, something my mother instilled in me, perhaps sort of the ethos at UC Berkeley and certainly the Peace Corps. And I knew that law would afford me opportunities to give back to my community in some way. And it, 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 it took me a while to get into public service. I, in order to pay off my very, very significant law school loans where uh, I did not have the benefit of any financial scholarship, I went into private practice with a couple of great firms and a great company, and I learned a ton. And I'm not one of those who will ever criticize a big firm life or even general counsel's office in a major corporation because I learned a ton. The people were amazing. And I was able to do pro bono work, which almost all firms now uh, enable uh, junior associates to do. But I knew that ultimately I would go into public service. And after the tragic 9-11 attack, it was, I knew it was my time. I'd been able to pay off most of my student loans. And I joined uh, the U.S. government at that time. And I, uh, I miss it to this day. It was an incredible experience. I was able to continue that. I've been able to continue that uh, public service through my previous uh, organization, wherein I had the distinct honor and privilege uh, and pleasure of meeting you and working with you, a company that provides solutions to the intelligence community and law enforcement agencies trying to do good. And I remain uh, generally in that sphere. And being a lawyer opened up opportunities that I probably would not have had. Now, I am not sure that I always want to be a lawyer in terms of official positions with organizations. I am also interested in policy matters or operational matters. But having a law degree, without a doubt, opened doors, at least to me, that most likely would not have been opened otherwise. And for that, I will always look back on the opportunities I was given as a junior lawyer with a law, uh, with a law degree 
with with great appreciation. And for your students, many of you may decide uh, after you leave law school that you don't necessarily enjoy or want to be a lawyer. But I think the the what you've learned in law school, how you've been taught to think through problems, how you're able to argue effectively both sides in good faith, will enable you if you go into firms or the government or become entrepreneurs or to work for non-governmental organizations, give you a distinct advantage over those other very, very fortunate individuals that have gone to, for instance, graduate school. Uh, and you will see that your uh, opinions are valued and that you are able to see things in a different way than those that don't have formal legal education are. Well, Peter, I want to want to thank you for, for joining Tending Bar today. This has been a fascinating conversation, and there's so many uh, interesting aspects of your career we haven't haven't even uh, touched upon. But uh, you you have done so many um, great services for for the country and the various agencies you've worked for. I want to thank you for that, and I want to thank you for sharing your perspective with us uh, today uh, here on Tending Bar. Thank you, Todd. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I hope we're able to physically get together to talk about all these important matters face-to-face before too long. Thanks for joining us for this, our first episode of Tending Bar. I'm grateful to Peter Vincent for being part of it. So you get the idea. Tending Bar is a conversation with interesting people, most of whom are lawyers, but not all of them, about the big things they're doing that make a positive impact in the communities where they live and work. I'm excited about our future guests, and I think you will be too. Just as an example, we'll soon be talking with a prominent Washington, D.C. attorney who has made a living defending police officers accused of crimes. In light of the current public debate around the role of policing and the Black Lives Matter movement, you won't want to miss that conversation. Or consider the prominent political attorney who recently went head-to-head with his own political party to challenge and overturn a discriminatory law in the Deep South. All of our guests have interesting stories to tell, and I hope that you'll join us for all of them. But until then, this is Tending Bar. I'm Todd Harris, and I'll see you soon.